This episode is brought to you by Blackmagic Design, creating revolutionary solutions for film, post-production, and television. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. Hey everybody, I'm Charles Hain, uh, tech writer at No Film School. I'm here with George Edelman. Hi. And Michelle De La Torre. Hello. And uh, we're doing the No Film School podcast. This week on the podcast, we are covering Watchmen, the HBO show with an ending. We're covering the shutdown of uh, Vancouver Post House that helped Lion King and Sonic. And we're also covering the new Nikon firmware and tech news and a fair use Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. Okay, so our first story this week is Watchmen. Holy shit. So first off, this is going to be spoiler filled. We're just going to all talk about it, assuming that everybody has seen everything. So if you haven't seen Watchmen, skip ahead to, I don't know, 10 minutes from now. And if we're still talking about, like, naked atomic creatures and uh, <laughs> English manners, keep skipping. And then stop skipping ahead when you get to us talking about Vancouver. Because there's literally nothing about Canada in all of Watchmen. Canada is completely ignored. So when you get to Canada, you can stop. Um, wow, HBO has a show that ended properly. That's a interesting place to start also because there's a lot of questions about like a lot of people were like okay so season 2 what's season 2 what it like opens the door for something and interestingly Damon Lindelof uh showrunner executive producer of the show has made it pretty clear from the beginning that he wanted a sort of singular contained story within the Watchmen universe and that uh, there, the idea of a season two maybe wouldn't be connected to this. He maybe wouldn't be involved. It would be maybe its own series within that world, but he's unclear on how it works. And to that, I just think, well, it'll happen because there's money to be made. It's just a question of who's doing it and what they're doing, right? Yeah. Well, also, what I thought was really interesting about it was that, like, you know, the dream of everybody is that we learn from artistic uh, errors and that we keep growing and we keep iterating. And, uh, you know, Lost notoriously did not end to many people's satisfactions. And uh, it's really interesting that we have this show that is created as a single piece. And there are so many things about the ending that are being so clearly set up through the whole show Whereas Lost very much felt like a show where it was constantly iterating its own new sources of tension. It was co it was constantly creating new sources of mystery. This is definitely a show where there was a lot of mystery. There was a lot of tension. There were a lot of things keeping you along. But it was all designed to have payoffs. And even though it had a lot of payoffs, those payoffs felt satisfactory and tonally unified with the rest of it in a way that I thought was... Um, sort of amazingly fascinating. I also, I mean, he's talked a lot about this in interviews, but like uh, doing that, you know, if if you're going to treat Watchmen as a, like I think Alan Moore has lots of objections to his work being adapted, which I totally respect. But one of them I think is that he views Watchmen as very much a product of its time, Thatcher, the Soviet Union, like that conflict. And so he finds adaptations of it that isolate it from that time I think I've heard something to this effect to be sort of like missing the point. And I think that this show by taking by instead of focusing on nuclear Holocaust, which is like, I remember the cold war. I remember being afraid of dying in a nuclear Holocaust. It's not a worry I live with every day. Um, and instead trying to really t uh, grapple with 
America's history of race relations and white supremacy as being like the dominant cultural thing we are trying to unpack at the moment, I thought was like the smartest possible decision they could have made. I have a lot to say about Watchmen. I I went into this initially with almost zero Watchmen knowledge. And I decided in the time in between to become a Watchmen connoisseur. So I I bought the graphic novel, started reading it, watched the original movie, watched the show. But I want to know, um, Michelle, how, where are you in terms of your Watchmen? And this was all was not true a week ago, by the way. So I spent a lot of my free time in the world of the Watchmen. Michelle, what was your, um, what's, how far did you get in the show? And what's your je- basic, you know, experience of it? Where am I in my watch of the watching of the Watchmen? <laughs> yeah. Has your watch ended? I was new to all of this. I have not read the book. I have not seen the possibly universally panned film that came out a couple <laughs> years ago. Uh, so I'm coming into this totally blind, like a mask over my head, and pun intended. Um, I will take a moment, though, to shout out um, Nicole Cassell. Like, this is what happens when you put, when you give the keys of a series to um, someone who can, someone who can make this world and do it in a way that is piles of information in every single episode um, with all of the details. It's awesome. It is, there's just so much packed into every single piece of it. And that is a feat. It's dense. That's for sure. And, you know, I came into it. So Charles, you've experienced Watchmen over the years. In fact, I feel like you said you reading the graphic novel. I feel like I'm stealing your line, so I don't want. Oh to yeah, no. Like in high you. school, <laughs> I was like a freshman or sophomore in high school, and I remember reading Watchmen, and it's the first thing I remember reading where I was like, "Oh my god, I have to make this into a movie." Obviously, other people got there first, and that's the nature of the creative marketplace, where you know uh, Zack Snyder was able to do it before I got there. Uh, but it was the first thing I remember, just having this amazing, intense. Uh, connection with the story and then, you know, rereading it, I think, the next day in its entirety. Um, I'm not a hater on the Zack Snyder film, personally. I, you know, there's a lot I like about it. It's polarizing. Let's just, yeah, it's a polarizing uh, movie. The people who love it and feel like it does a lot with a very, it's a a huge challenge to cram all of that into a movie. I think that it's, and Alan Moore is clear about this, it's really... Terry Gilliam tried to turn it into a miniseries or a, sh- or a movie in the early 90s. It's a lot to try and get in there, and it creates its own universe and history. And if you go in without knowing anything, that movie is a little out of control and confusing. Well, also, I think that it says a lot about the nature of the industry, where we are today versus 10 years ago. Whereas, like, if it was 2019... And there was no Zack Snyder movie. They would have just made a 10-part miniseries for HBO, which would have been a financially viable thing now in a way it wasn't really even 10 years ago. And that would have probably been a more interesting work because going back to Michelle's point, even in this nine-hour thing we watched of the new Watchmen, it's so dense. There's Mm -hmm. so many things going on. And there's so many... Uh, you know, and then there's like deliberate, I don't know if you've gotten to the point where there's just like deliberate, uh, really satisfying and enjoying to me, like, uh, you know, we see a whole bunch of seventh cavalry going into, um, looking glasses house at the end of an episode. And if I remember correctly, the next time we see them, they're just all dead. I don't remember if, I think we just skipped the fight scene. Yeah. 
because we're like, you know, yes. like he's, yes. he's, yeah, we don't even need to see that because we know Looking Glass has it. Um, I mean, look, I'm very fascinated by trauma. Uh, it is a really interesting subject that I've been reading a lot about lately. And, uh, you know, there's that amazing book, The Body Keeps the Score, which is one of like the best books I've ever read on trauma. And then there's that great book by Sebastian Younger Tribe. And like, one of the things I love so much about this show, Watchmen, is that it really tries to grapple with trauma in a very, like, realistic way in the way it reverberates through every decision these characters make in their lives. Like, you sometimes see stories about PTSD, and, and it's very much presented as, like, I have these intense flashbacks to the jungle, and, and so I've got to go kill or whatever. But it's like... Sometimes or all the time. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's, like, the, you know, the Vietnam veteran cliche. And, like, yes, I firmly believe that many people have deliberate, like, experienced flashbacks to traumatic experiences. But trauma is also this thing that just changes all of the decisions you make after trauma. And it doesn't necessarily involve flashbacks. You're not even conscious of the way in which it changes the choices you make. But because of these traumatic experiences, your choices and decisions feel different. And so I felt like Looking Glass and Angela Abar are these two characters that, you know, I mean, in Angela Abar's case, have multi-generational trauma that have affected the decisions she makes as a person. And in Looking Glass's case, we don't really find a lot about uh, Looking Glass's family history, but we certainly know about a very traumatic experience in his childhood. And I I felt like we saw an incredibly well-done portrait of someone really trying, trying his best and struggling to reckon with trauma and feeling like... And I, I, I like it when characters try... I like I connect very well when I feel like characters are doing their best. It's one of the things I love so much about the Bourne Ultimatum movies is that like at every point you always feel like he is trying to he's like he's not always figuring out the smartest move to make and he's making mistakes, but he's really trying hard to make these smart decisions. And I feel like Looking Glass as a character is really trying to reckon with his trauma and finding it overwhelming. There's a scene where he is deceived and um it's just such a great piece of writing because the first time you watch it, before you know it's a deception, uh, it reads one way. And then once you know it's a deception, it's still she still never lies. She just doesn't present huge portions of the truth. And that strikes me as something that someone with significant trauma would really fall into. And, you know, what's really interesting is that the whole thing is built around this idea. The original Watchmen is built around this idea that this massive event, Madison Square Garden exploding with a giant squid, will cause world peace. But Adrian Veidt, because he's probably a sociopath, doesn't reckon with the multi-generations of trauma that that event creates, like the psychic pain of those left behind. I want to talk about, from a filmmaking standpoint, this is a really fascinating example of how someone can take IP, intellectual property, that is, ex- that is well-known and successful and has been previously adapted and find a, an entirely new take and an entirely new creative path within it that both um, l- like dovetails with what has gone before but creates a new story for a new time. And as we move into an industry that really prioritizes content that that exists in the world because it helps people to want to watch it, um, it's really interesting to track 
how creatives at every level create have their voice within that right because that's going to be what's available to filmmakers writers directors all kinds of filmmakers and damon lindelof is a fascinating case because he has been in this for a while he's been he's been adapting and finding new stories within other people's material for quite some time with varying degrees of success and failure and from what i know Apparently, the, being in the writer's room on this was really stressful, and it was a really difficult show to work on. And part of it was because there was a lot of stress and anxiety about getting it right. And I think that's because of what he knows from Lost, but also from some of the other things he's done. Like, he did an Alien movie. He did a uh, Star Trek, some Star Trek movies. And I think that the pressure to be like, okay, I've learned a lot and the failure on, on, on these kinds of stages with, with fan culture is extremely painful. <laughs> and I think he really, like, I think they went in, they went hard on this, like to try and, and be intricate and right and do something honest but faithful but unique. And they did pull that off, but it sounds, from what I hear, it sounds like it was, it was costly, maybe sort of like Adrian Veidt's plan but i want to before i hand it off to michelle to kind of give some thoughts on this i i think that there's a really um interesting thing going on with this show you talk about trauma about you know watchmen the original to me is kind of like it's about the death of the superhero and the context was in 1985 that superhero stories and comic books and stuff had been around for a long time and people were so familiar with it that it was almost time to sort of reach the end of that storyline and start talking about the equivalent of like end of the West Westerns, like a, a um, Bonnie, uh, not Bonnie and Clyde, a Butch Cassidy or a uh, Wild Bunch. And I feel like Watchmen is sort of that equivalent to the graphic novel comic book world. So I, I feel like this show, that movie in 2009 happened before movie and TV audiences were ready for the end of the comic book world in those mediums. You know, Dark Knight had come out one year before that movie and it's maybe like one of the seminal comic book movies. So now I feel like 10 years later, we're closer to being ready to talk about, is it time to sort of see some death and, and, and decease in within the world of, comic book characters in movies and television and they did it in such a creative way because they introduced the idea of race and gender and how comic book heroes are historically white men and this turns that all on its head it challenges that disrupts it and kind of blows it all up i would say and i think that that's why it's so I mean, there's a moment in this show where a white man in power says, it's really hard to be a white man in America today. A junior Which senator. Echoes, yeah. Right. It yes. echoes a sentiment. We've act, People actually say that, right? A lot. We Correct. hear that a lot. And it's, it's shocking to some of us. But in the context of the story, it's so, it's chilling when it happens. And it captures what, I mean, also the, the, superheroes of the watchmen the original watchmen it was like all white 99 percent men right <laughs> so like even the first watchmen didn't quite get to that point where we were talking about a post 
patriarchal superhero world. But that's what this Watchmen series does. And it it rewrites or it inserts in an, in an extremely clever way with hooded justice. Uh, people of color, people with different sexual identities into the history of the Watchmen mythology, right? And that becomes part of... So I, I feel like that's, to me, the big, like, wow, the mind-blowing, like, that's what they did, that they they managed to push forward this story that was already pretty forward-thinking. So those were my, that's, that's where I was most impressed. I think what's one of the more f- frustrating pieces, not about the show, but maybe about, if I may... The award cycle is that this is a show that managed to do all of that and then when it came to kind of public acknowledgement matching the public discourse it didn't pan out and I at first thought maybe something at first I thought maybe it wasn't eligible right for anything like maybe they missed the deadline I was like oh maybe I'm missing this in terms of the Globes or, or any other you know in terms of the nominations and so I was, I was like maybe maybe they Maybe maybe I missed something. Maybe they aren't eligible. And then I thought maybe that someone had just forgotten to send out the screeners, right? Like maybe this is like a problem that uh, you know because what I'm seeing is the kind of public chatter about a show or the impact of a show. Um, you would hope that that would match, you know, in some sort, in some case, the the very public nature of of an award like that, right? Or the public conversation. And what's interesting to me. Um, is uh, like Regina King is amazing, and when she got an Emmy a couple of years ago, it was for a miniseries that I don't think anyone was talking about. And so on the flip side, like here's a series everyone's talking about, and it doesn't like work the same way. It's really interesting to me, like what what we're talking about here on the podcast or here in the world, and how that translates into whether or not it's recognized. That's a really by... good point because it's a because a white man who wrote it and, and EP'd it is getting all the credit. <laughs> But it's also, it mirrors in television something we see in movies, right? Where the reason the Oscars expanded the number of Best Picture nominees is because there were so many people who were mad. Was it Dark Knight that didn't get nominated? Yeah, Dark Knight was, and, Dark Knight was the, yeah. And it is still the same point. thing where, like, I mean, Watchmen's definitely my favorite show of the year. I mean, I can't think of anybody Chernobyl else. Was, oh, no, Chernobyl. Chernobyl was very good. Yeah, Chernobyl and Watchmen are the two things where I'm like, oh, my God, thank you, HBO, for continuing to, like, just... Nail oh, Succession, though. That's also really good. That's true, but it's not new this year. But um, Of the oh, new... Right. Yeah, right. but again, HBO is just killing it. And yet, you know, as Succession got nominations, I believe Chernobyl got nominations. And you're right, like, Watchmen is kind of absent there in kind of an interesting way. And I think part of it is the subject matter. And then, yeah, part of it is probably just systemic racism uh, continuing <laughs> to not... Laugh, but yeah. Yeah. It's not going anywhere. I yeah I I think it's a great point, but um, I think it's a great point. It's like you can you can talk about it or you can be about it, and we're like like in the mainstream. Hollywood is great at talking about it, right? But not great at being about it. Like yeah. the the this the um the messaging is always is always correct, but as for the actual practices, wow, like like very behind the times in a lot of ways. And I think that that's something that we should never get off the point of. Like, this show is about that, and that is not reflected in the way the industry works. But, you know, it's, uh, we can still, like, 
I think we I think both things can be true and we can um, still celebrate the fact that this show I mean this show makes literally like there's the gender thing but there's also like it makes Superman black like that's what the show does on multiple levels and that's pretty cool and pretty uh what's the word i'm disruptive bombastic like (laughs) like it's like it sneaks it it sneaks it by you when you think you're watching this one thing and it's like hey no we're gonna we're gonna totally turn this thing upside down and who does need to wear a mask right like there's the idea of trauma but there's also like people who have to hide from society people whose sexual identities don't line up with societal expectations or who the color of their skin doesn't line up with what people want to see or who they are going to be um, treat with decency. There are times where you are wondering about a character's motivation and then it's revealed later why they did something. And one thing I think the writer's room did really well on this show is at every moment, even when later you get new information and you realize a character's motivation was something else, you know, there's a moment where we realize the chief played by the wonderful Don Johnson and what a singing voice in the pilot. There's a moment where he's like in <laughs> their like flying thing and he's hunting down the seventh cavalry members and he's being like risky and dangerous to do it. But when you're watching the pilot, you're like, ah, he's just like, you know, he's just like a cowboy. It's Tulsa. It's the West. He's just like willing to push it to get the bad guys. And then by the end, you realize like, oh, he's afraid they'll rat him out. He's killing them to protect himself. And that's why he's willing to push it so far. But, you know, there are other shows I have seen or other work I've seen where the first you're sitting there wondering, you're sitting there the first time you watch it saying like that, I don't buy it. And then later the motivation's <laughs> explained. Whereas this show does a really good job of giving you sort of a short term like, oh, that's why that's happening. And then later you're like, oh, that's why that happened in a way that I think is a really nice, you know, thinking about why people do things. And how they present why they do things to the public. I also, I loved uh, Red Scare so much. Uh, <laughs> he, he never goes anywhere. He never does anything. But he's just this, like, perfect, like, uh, who was it? Orson Welles had a thing where he was like, you can judge a movie by its little characters. And if you watch yeah. Citizen Kane, you really see, like, even the little one-line part, the guy who brings in the newspaper to Kane in one scene, like, even in that one line, he's a complete person. And I feel like, you know, there's three or four little guys. There's the Panda and Red Scare and Pirate Jenny. And they maybe have 12 lines between them over nine episodes. But you know everything you need to know. Like, you totally... Everything about Red Scare and his two ex-wives and, like, you know, handing over custody at McDonald's on a weekend is just, like, written on his face. I was going to ask you guys both a question, which is, will you plan... Are you planning to rewatch this now that you've seen the whole thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, not soon because, you know, there's other stuff to catch up on. But no, absolutely. I'm excited. Knowing the ending, I'm excited to see things a different way the second time through. Exactly. Yeah. I. It's a good question. I'm not. But part of it is because, like Charles just said, there's a lot of other things. And part of it is also that there are some things that I look back on already and I think, huh, did that quite make sense? And that, and I don't really want to, like, I don't want to do that. I was very satisfied my first time through. And if anything, I kind of want to dive more into, like, I want to finish reading the graphic novel and I want to read a little more about Alan Moore because he kind of fascinates me. You know, Alan Moore 
is such a weird, fascinating figure. And he, I think his quote about when they made the first movie was, so, he, he's notoriously not interested in people adapting his work. And if he hadn't given away rights a long time ago, he would never give them. And he said something like, what does the world need with another shitty movie or something like that? And I think that he is just so, he had, we, I wrote a post up about a quote he had about superhero, the fascination with superhero culture in general to this day and how infantilized we are. And I just, I think I'd more likely explore the world around it and then kind of move on to the next thing. But, um, but I think it's worthy of a rewatch. I guess I would say that. Would you, Michelle, would you rewatch it? I don't know if I have the time to rewatch a show like that, but I think I would. I found myself taking lots of notes, which I don't usually do during TV shows. And so part of me wants to rewatch with those notes in my hand and say, you know, all those moments that I wrote WTF at, like, what does that mean now? Right? So the first time you see squids falling from the sky, I probably wrote that down somewhere (laughs) as, as what, so (laughs) something like that. And so, you know, now knowing everything, you know, if you're knowing all the context, I'm going to go back and say, oh, that, you know, how does that fit into the greater narrative? It would be a really worthy exercise, I think, of of how to structure something. And so that might be interesting for me. That's a really good point. I would say about that real quick that I was, I had this concern in the back of my mind during certain sequences, like I'll say during like Jeremy Irons' character, whose sequences stand alone for a lot of the series and are all amazing. Um, I was thinking like, is this like a lost thing where we'll get into like a fourth season before I know what the hell is going on here? But what was amazing about it is that they did satisfyingly tie it together in that season. They took things that seemed so unconnected to what was going on in the story and eventually weaved them in seamlessly, right? It's just amazing. From the filmmaking standpoint and the creative standpoint, what are the things about it that sort of like stood out to you lesson-wise or inspiration-wise most? I mean, we've talked a lot about story stuff, but are there other things? Like you mentioned a split diopter, for example. For me, what I kept, the other thing that I kept writing down was this art of editing in the music and the cues and the timing and the pacing and when they decided to stop a music cue, uh, when they decided to start a music cue um, as part of the pacing and as part of the storytelling of the episodes. And that comes down to part of the sound design and I assume is part of, you know, kind of the overall mix of things and um, as using, using their score and using other sounds and using other music as part of their storytelling strategies but also when they decided to just cut it right there were these scenes where something yes. would switch and then they would just end and totally. it was a great part of of the narrative it was a great part of the energy of those episodes and I kept taking notes about that, about yeah. moments where I said, I said, oh, the music people deserve a raise um, or the, well, the editing people need to get honored here. Um, sound design, sound editing, those kinds of things need to get honored here because it was part of the design. It was not an afterthought. It was part of the overall feel. Regina King would, you know, look up towards the camera and then that would be their cue, right? It would just yeah. help tell that story. And it was there was never a missed moment to do that throughout. And I just loved that piece of it. That's a good point. They used it. I think they used music and the score in a really unique and interesting way in the ways you outlined. I would also say like the needle drops on this show were fantastic. Um, They had some 
just excellent ones that that were like punctuation marks that like i'll just say like when we get there's a david bowie one at the end of one episode that i was like oh my god that's so good yeah (laughs) um charles did you have any so for me i mean i'll fully admit i didn't know this watching the episode but i learned it reading uh some interviews with the creators afterwards there's an episode i can't remember it's i think it's six i think it's seven where one of the characters experiences someone else's memories and they did it all anytime this character is experiencing someone else's memory it's always a oneer and oneers are something that like there's amazing oneers there's also oneers that call too much attention to themselves but the key thing for me that's always the hardest about oneers is how much time they take to prep i feel like every production i've been on where we try and do a oneer there's never the proper amount of prep time built in to because you know it is way harder to prepare for a a shot where you can't edit away any bad parts and so uh, what they did on this one is the director really pushed for something that i wasn't originally budgeted and scheduled but the director was like i want to pre-shoot the whole thing and uh we'll just be on a stage but we'll shoot the entire episode, all of the winners ahead of time, so that we can cut them together. We can know how it works. The whole camera team can be ready. We can all be prepared so that when we show up on the day with the proper actors and the proper set construction and the proper art department, we're not still blocking and choreographing things. We've already done it. We might have to tweak some things on the day, but we're better prepared. And for me, it's like, I mean, this is obviously a show that was all about preparation throughout, but... It's such a good reminder. You know, I feel like a lot of times when you're a director for a hire on projects, you tend like there's a it's a train that's running and you're expected to get on the train and be the captain of the train for a while and then get off. And the ability of this director to be like, hey, guys, here's my vision for this episode. I think it's really important for this reason. I need this thing you haven't planned for. And but I need it. And just because we haven't planned for it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We have to find the time to pre-shoot this. I think it's a really good lesson for every filmmaker. I mean, there are many, many times as a filmmaker where you're going to be in situations where it's like, oh, well, yeah, but we don't have X or we don't have the budget for X or we didn't plan for X. So can you just live without it? And the ability to be like, no, 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 no. If we want this episode to be everything it can possibly be, we need to pre-shoot this so that when we shoot it, it works. And like that episode totally works. That episode is killer. And it's, I don't remember how many wonders it is, but it is a bunch of very long, flowing, like massive shots that also have this like uh, mesmerism special effect in some of them. And uh, having that, having the willingness as a work for hire director, I mean, work for hire director on Watchmen is probably a little, you're probably a little more involved than some work for hire directors. But in a situation where you're not one of the co-EPs, you are just the director of that episode to be like, I, I don't care how we have to figure out to do it. We have to figure out how to do it, I think is a good lesson for every filmmaker to remember. The Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6K has the professional features needed for feature film, television programming, and documentaries. However, now these same features can be used to revolutionize other types of work, such as blog videos, YouTube content, and more. The combination of 13 stops of dynamic range, incredible low-light performance with dual-native ISO, up to 25,600 for HDR images, and Blackmagic RAW provides feature film images with precise skin tones and beautiful organic colors. Featuring a larger 6,144 by 3,456 pixel super 35mm sensor and EF lens mount, 
The Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6K lets you use larger EF photographic lenses to create cinematic images with shallower depth of field, allowing creative defocused backgrounds and gorgeous bokeh effects. External controls give quick access to essential functions, while the large 5-inch touchscreen makes it easy to frame shots, focus accurately, and change camera settings. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com for more info. All right, so up next, we have some bad news for our, uh, our folks up north. The VFX studio that did a lot of work on Lion King and also were apparently the VFX studio responsible for fixing the nightmare that was the original Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, <laughs> have, have chosen to shut down their Vancouver office. The NPC Vancouver is shut down. And uh, it sucks. It, yeah, I mean, first off, it sucks because Vancouver is... You know, Vancouver is full of many local artists, but it is also a place where many people move for the work. I mean, I feel like we used to joke when I lived in L.A. that at least once a month we had a going away party for somebody we knew in VFX who was moving to Vancouver because there was just so much work there. Granted, because there's so much work, a lot of these people at MPC will probably be able to move on. But it's also just a really big bummer because, you know... The VFX artists work incredibly hard delivering Lion King and delivering a refreshed version of Sonic um, that the internet doesn't seem to hate as much on time is an incredibly time-consuming effort. And the story that is uh, going around right now is that it's at least partially a decision by MPC to move more of their work to a lower cost of living arenas where they can pay artists less. Uh, now, MPC has offices all over the world. I'm not. I'm sure that's not the only reason they're closing the Vancouver office. Um, but yeah, it is a real bummer when teams come together, work their asses off, and really kill it on two projects that, uh, you know, I don't know if the refreshed Sonic is out, but I know the refreshed Sonic trailer is out and the internet is already much happier. And uh, it's, it's a real bummer that they're shutting down the Vancouver office. And, our, you know, my hearts and thoughts go out, especially shutting it down right before the holidays. Uh, I hope people are able to uh, land on new gigs, and I hope that the Vancouver marketplace is able to absorb a lot of that really quickly, because that sucks. I was going to ask a question, which um, I am, which I've heard some conversation about in the post-production editing communities. Which is it time to have a VFX union to protect ours and to protect? folks from things like this um like is it time it's it's 20 years too late we need a vfx unit right like but it needs to be a new kind of union that's international like even within the motion picture industry in north america there's the east coast unions and the west coast unions and i remember when i moved to new york i had to learn all new numbers and there's things that are in different unions in california than they are here and local 600 is the same but like the grips are a different union and it's just a whole like and, you know, there was a time when the industry was much more regional and that made sense. And the people hiring in L.A. were hiring L.A. people and the New York people were New York people. But at this point, we need a worldwide union because what, you know, the, what, what we don't want to have happen is we have a VFX union of artists in America and Canada. And so the big companies are like, all right, well, all of the work will just go to India and China. We would like to be able to keep some of the work. And part of the leverage of that is being good at the work, you know, like, but... It is, a, uh, it is a complicated thing. So figuring out, I mean, it's going to be tricky to figure out what modern, like what globalized unions look like. 
But, I mean, VFX is the best example of where we need one. We have a post about this story on nofilmschool.com. <laughs> and uh, here, there's a quote in it. We, can't, we could not verify the authenticity of this quote, but it was ostensibly from an ex-MPC Vancouver employee posted on Reddit. And I think it's worth mentioning what they said because it kind of covers, or what this, this quote, because I think it kind of covers some of the concerns, but also obviously reflects the problem here. We've put in, we've all put in extreme hours wrapping two infamous projects in the last couple of months, done multiple weeks without a day off, 17 plus hour shifts. Most of us are seriously sleep deprived and suffering. We've worked really fucking hard to get this out the door, and I'm ashamed that they are happier prioritizing their profit margins and tax incentives over the insane talent and commitment of 100 VFX artists in Vancouver. I feel insulted, and all I've given to MPC, I feel like in return they gave me the, fin- the finger. Good luck to all the other insanely talented artists, etc. I... I just think that that like there's a human element that gets lost when we just hear about the headline and we just think about like we kind of touched on this with Watchmen. But like there's there's the end result and who we credit. Lion King was a big hit. Right. Um, And then there's how it affects individual creatives and filmmakers across the industry and whether or not um, we're thinking about the craftspeople who are doing a lot of the harder work and not getting compensated well, even worse, not having any job security. I mean, this is just part of the way things go, but it's it's good to be reminded, I think, that when they move, it's not it's not just a it this affects people's lives and even beyond where their next gig comes, because like you said, there may be lots of opportunities. You put a lot into these things like everybody working on a project like puts a lot into it and hours and and commitment. And it's crushing to be cast aside afterwards when you did a good job, right? Yeah. Like a really good job. (laughs) They did an excellent work and it and the proof was in the the results. And then and they don't like this is like the opposite of the response that they deserve. So it's good to call attention to that, I think. No, that is a great um, post. I, I really want, like, that is such a, whether or not it's an, like, the sentiment is true, whether or not it was an actual MPC employee of Vancouver, where it was like, no, we killed it. We killed it. You're supposed to keep, like, the theory behind the freelance thing is we kill it for you and then you keep hiring us because we keep killing it for you and then you keep hiring us and, and we're going to kill it for you so you'll keep hiring us. And to kill it for a client and then have the client be like, nah you know what? No more sucks. It really sucks, especially because there's no way everyone was paid properly on that job. There's no way the actual like toll it takes on your life and your health and your family to do that job was actually uh, properly compensated for the artists. And it goes back to the whole thing with Life of Pi, where, you know, the main VFX house on Life of Pi, Rhythm and Hughes did all of that work. And was out of business by the time the Oscars came around. Um, that was a slightly different issue. But it is a... Yeah, I mean, the VFX industry... It is time for some change in VFX. I mean, yeah, don't we in general, as an industry, take advantage of, of people, though? And I think that it's just... It's hard. Um, it Like, from a producer standpoint you need to come in at a certain number. That's your priority. 
or you need to find a way to make numbers work. So that means you will find ways to pay people less because you're motivated to do that. That's well, your job. Well, right? sure. But the argument, I think, is really if we had a VFX union, they could do what the writers union did. Right. Like the reason why VFX is so tricky is because it's so easy to internationalize. You can't really work with an editor not in your time zone. You can't work with a DP not in your time zone. They need to come to your time zone. But a VFX artist, you know, they work overnight. You you get in the office in the morning. You watch your shots. You give your notes. Uh, you have till the end of the day to give notes. And then they work overnight again. So it's sort of really easy to outsource. But if, if everybody got together and had bargaining power, I mean, frankly – VFX should have residuals. Like, if you think about a movie like Life of Pi, if you think about a movie like, uh, I mean, any of the major VFX-driven productions today, the fact that they don't have some form of residuals is crazy. I mean, a movie makes a billion billion dollars in profit. 90% of what you see on screen is created by VFX artists. And yeah, the actors have residuals because the actors have a strong union to fight for residuals. But no one in VFX, whether it's the company or the supervising artist or any of the individual artists, are seeing anything residual from their labor after creating these billion-dollar profit juggernauts. Um, yeah, VFX yeah, I mean, union. Robert now. Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. is an amazing part of Avengers as Iron Man, but a lot of times it's not him. A lot of times it's something yeah. VFX artists created. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just a weird thing to think about. It would be one thing if we weren't using VFX as often anymore, right? If we had somehow moved away from that. <laughs> but Lion King was literally 100% created, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's why it's interesting to me. It's, it's, it seems to be counter with what the industry is doing, right? We're, we're adding VFX to everything or making an entire film uh, completely computer-generated or something like that. And yet, we're, this is what's happening, right? It, fe- it feels like it should have they should have kind of gone upwards in in together upwards maybe isn't the right word but together and, and you know what another weird like because thinking about comparing it to actors and SAG and unions is like Lion King is a better example than uh, Robert Downey Jr. because his he's a big part of what's made that franchise work but like they paid a lot of big stars to do voices on Lion King and they will certainly get pieces of futures right. And, like, that is not why anyone went to see that movie. <laughs> right? Like, no, that's not why people went to see that Lion King movie. Animated movies for Disney used to do very well before they had movie stars doing voices. I don't know when that became part of the business model, but I really don't think it needs to be. I've always thought, I mean, I'm sure they know what they're doing. But I've always thought, what a weird way to spend money. Like, because, it, it, like, I don't think anybody cares if it's Beyonce and uh, Donald Glover doing the voices like i think they'd see it if it was anyone oh i disagree with you george (laughs) really am i wrong about that if i'm wrong about that then oh i don't know if they should keep doing it no i don't know if there's a right or wrong first of all i do think that when they landed beyonce it was much more than just an actor's voice right it was an icon that was coming to go do a voice here and that she contributed to the soundtrack too so it was much more of a overall ad um i i think people were excited about hearing them together beyonce and donald glover could they have hired someone else to do that potentially did it help them to have them to to have those two as their leads probably yeah that's fair 
Well, okay. Then maybe in some cases it makes sense. <laughs> I mean, those are big stars, and I think highly of both of them. But I would just say in general, I'm sort of like asking out loud, and I stand, cor- I, I stand corrected there. But I'm asking out loud, like, why does an animated movie need to have... Like, Robin Williams and the Genie was like the first... Wasn't that one of the first times that they really went all in on that? Because I feel like for a long time you could make like these... like. Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and like they these were huge successes without having stars play the leads. But things change. The marketplace changes. Uh, all right, up next in tech news, Nikon, for some reason not popular with filmmakers, but they're they're working on it. I don't understand why the Nikon hate, but there seems to be Nikon hate out there. Nikon has come out with a brand new filmmaker, uh, fil- a brand new firmware for their uh, full-frame mirrorless cameras. Uh, Michelle, you wrote up the story on this. Can you tell us a little bit more about why this is super exciting? Yeah, the firmware has... There's two pieces to this. One is the firmware update, and one is an an actual physical update to the cameras to make them compatible with Atomos recorders. And they both come with a little, a few caveats. So the the firmware update will allow folks to film, uh, excuse me, to use CF Express cards in the mirror, the Z cameras. And the reason they can do that is apparently is that the XQD card slot is so similar um, that they said, okay, we can update with a firmware, and then you should be able to use CF Express cards in that same single slot. For CF Express cards, you're limited, though, to Sony cards. So as of December 2019. So that's the first part. The second part is you can record out to Atomos recorders, the, the Ninja 5. But not the Shogun 7. It's just the that's Ninja right. it works with? Yeah. Well, that's that's what that's they've so named, weird. right? So I don't... Exactly. So <laughs> yes, you can use CF Express cards if you update your firmware, but you can only use Sony. And yes, you can record out to Atomos recorders um, doing 4K out on certain formats, but only to the Ninja 5. So they kind of halfway got there. I think they knew what filmmakers were trying to use in their equipment and said, maybe we can kind of make that work. Or they're on their way to getting more of those to work. That is the funny thing about December releases, right? So many things get announced in December because they're like, we promised you it was 2019. So here's this thing. It's like half of a pie. And if you bake it in the oven for a couple, yeah, and you're like, uh, but could you just finish it? Um, I think Apple has fallen into that a little bit with their, we totally released the new Mac Pro in 2019, even though if you order one online right now, it doesn't ship till January, but they made it. They made it under the wire. Um, so that's, that's what this seems like. So for a little context for people, and I'm going to drop this context because this is literally something I had to get up to speed with recently. See, what the hell is CF Express? I didn't know. So SD cards are what everybody has been shooting on for, I think I bought my first SD card camera 15 years ago. It's like, there's, you know, I have a little drawer in my office that says SD cards and there's like 20 cards in there. Some of which are 16 megabytes. I don't even know why I don't throw it away. Um, but it like came with a camera in 2003 or whatever. So that's been the format for a long time, but there's physical speed limitations on SD cards. We're not really, we're definitely at the point where we're trying to shoot bigger and bigger files, higher and higher data rates. 
And so we need to move to a new standard. And we've really pushed SD cards as far as we can. The new standard that everybody finally settled on after fighting for a while was uh, is something called uh, CF Express. You'll often see it written CFX. And CFX is interesting because, like, for instance, if you're uh, if you own a Black Magic Ursa, that takes CF cards, and CF cards are not going to fit in your CF Express slot. However, they did this weird thing where there's, you know, the battle was really between XQD and CF, and I only really knew CF because most motion picture people did CF. XQD wasn't really on my radar, um, but then weirdly, the whole consortium that figures this out went with XQD as their new slot format. So the fact that Nikon already uses that format means that it, it can now support CF Express. And I think what's probably going to happen is starting in 2020, we're going to start to see, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would not be shocked if there's a Blackmagic camera in 2020 that takes CF Express. Uh, I think we're going to see a bunch of Sony cameras. I think it's going to move to being the new format. It comes in three sizes, type A, type B, and type C. Um, and it's way, way, way faster than SD cards. So we're going to start to see like, oh, 8K raw to a little card. It'll be a CFX card. It won't be an SD card. But like an SD-sized card will be able to shoot way, way, way more stuff. So it's actually really cool that Nikon are like the first people to the CF Express party. That means we've got Panasonic S1H ProRes RAW uh, over HDMI. We have Nikon. ProRes RAW over HDMI, but correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think we don't have Canon ProRes RAW over HDMI, right? So it's only Panasonic and Nikon at this point, which is kind of, you know, good for Nikon getting in there really quickly with a format that, like, ProRes RAW is pretty great. George, you've got National Film School. So uh, this week we have a fair use question from David Pierce. Um... I've been considering starting a film education YouTube channel, but I'm concerned about getting my videos taken down if I use too much footage. I was going to discuss national cinema and film movements, which I think needs illustrated film footage to portray what the movies of that age slash style looked like. I was just wondering what channels do to get around copyright strikes. I don't really care about maintaining monetization. It's not financially viable. Um, I just need a technique to avoid getting videos pulled. Regards, David. Thanks for the question, David. Um, this is a... Uh, look, YouTube is filled with video essays that use... And so is Vimeo. Um, that use... Uh, let me go back and take that because I realize Vimeo is a partner. <laughs> uh, Vimeo and YouTube are filled with educational video essays that use footage from movies. I am not a lawyer, but I know that if it's for educational purposes, then it's part of fair use. If you monetize it, someone can cancel your monetization essentially by putting in a you know complaint that you're monetizing someone else's uh, IP. But there are tons of channels out there that do this successfully. Um, they they use clips from movies and TV shows. And all I would say is that you should definitely get a hold of those legally before you put them in your videos. That, that would be my major uh, input on it. But do you guys want to add in? I mean, I know we can talk about some of the big ones. We can talk about the um, 
we can talk about every frame of painting, which is probably one of the greatest video essay channels of all time. Well, and um, every frame of painting did a really wonderful thing. So every frame of painting stopped, uh, God, a couple of years ago now. And when uh, they stopped creating videos, they put up a, a big post of, hey, guys, Tony here's Zhao. all the. Yeah. Well, no, Tony, it was Tony's out and a partner, right? Yeah. I, th- I think part of the goodbye post was Tony's out was like, I get too much credit for this. I have a partner, um, which yes. is why. Um, but I forget the partner's name. So now I've fallen into the Tony Zhao trap of also thinking <laughs> it's too much Tony Zhao. But Tony Zhao and his partner did a huge post on here's how we dealt with copyright. Here's what we did. And they did a bunch of beta testing. Uh, they would regularly cut multiple versions of videos and upload them because beyond people like beyond human beings flagging videos, YouTube has a whole yeah. bunch of automated tools that flag videos, right? So, you know, I've I recorded, you know, a spec commercial I made in grad school with uh, with a Velvet Underground song, and within an hour it was down because there's automated tools that just analyze everything that goes up on YouTube, making sure that there's not, you know, they are looking for fingerprints that are signatures from copywritten material, and it, it applies to picture and audio. But, uh, you know, there are a, a lot of ways to work around it. Uh, most of the things you've got to be concerned about are things that belong to the big IP companies. So, like, you mentioned national cinema. If you're doing, like, a Czech New Wave video, uh, you know, and you want to do, like, some clips from closely watched trains and the shop on the corner, and, uh, you know, you're probably going to be able to get away with longer clips because I don't know that there are... I don't know that those companies have really put the the financial work into... Uh, integrating them into the IP scanners on YouTube. If you want to make a video essay about Avengers Infinity Game, um, or whatever that is, I haven't seen it yet, um, (laughs) you're going to get away with much, much, much shorter clips because their IP is going to be much more aggressive. You're also, you're covered under fair use for educational uses, but educational uses require non-monetization, so you're not going to monetize, so that's fine. And... Fair use is still one of those things where a lot of IP companies are still really aggressive about pulling stuff down, even when you could argue that it was fair use. Yeah. Um, That's a good point that like you can be, you, you can not monetize it and it can be fair use and they can still pull it down. Yeah. But I would say just be willing to iterate the same, you know, that it, I would just say be willing to inter- iterate the same thing. I sort of always say of like, you know, you put it up, it gets knocked down, recut it. You put it up, it gets knocked down, recut it. You put it up. To, like, that was definitely the story of every frame of painting where they were like, all right, we learned. It was sort of a dance with YouTube to find ways to get their videos through the filters where they were like, we are fair use, but we keep getting flagged anyway. And here's what we're going to do about it. Yeah, he would show like long sequences or try to that illustrated his points and so that i could see why he was you know getting into some more likely uh bots finding it territory um but why not mention how amazing his video essays are while we're talking about this if you haven't looked at every frame of painting go look at it it's like it's just the best it's great i think that there's the way that the law is written is is really you already hit the. You already talked about the storage, the educational piece, but also the time piece, like the length of time you're using of the work, whatever the percentage is, um, that you can still claim still claim fair use for. I I also think that, and I don't know how many people actually do this, um, and because I don't know if it works all the time. I wonder if there's just 
a benefit in asking. Like, there's never any harm to ask, right? There's always, like, this kind of, like, oh, I'm just going to use this and, like, post it and it's going to be fine. But, I, you know, there's there's always something to be said for, and this goes for music a lot of the time, too. Like, you never know who's going to get you, give you permission. And a lot of time, permission comes from the most unlikely of places. <laughs> and so if you're interested in just saying, like, oh, I'm interested in doing a video essay. Like, will you let me do this? Like, they might say yes. And, and that goes for, more for music than just for video because you're literally going to upload something that's copywritten but um i i never you know there's you could go under the radar right and post something or you can be open about it and say this is what i'm doing and i think that's what i think that gets rewarded sometimes um to be open about the work that you're doing what you want to do to folks and see what they say michelle is michelle is going with the better to ask permission than to ask forgiveness (laughs) tactic Which is the contrary to what they teach you in all of the film industry, which is that it's true, it's true. break the rules <laughs> and then beg and lie, cheat, steal, you know. But I, I'm all in favor of this new method. Let's be upfront and honest and ask permission. And we'll probably hear a lot of no's, but at least we can feel good about the way we approach others in the world <laughs> not, and not constantly be trying to get away with something. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I, the, yeah, that's the perfect ending. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. This has been, uh, I'm Charles Hain. You can hit me on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hain, H-A-I-N-E. Uh, I also have another uh, podcast that's just technology, The Week in Film Tech at weekinfilmtech.com. I got a couple books out, Business and Entrepreneurship for Filmmakers and uh, Color Grading 101. And I write a bunch of posts at No Film School. I'm reviewing the Sigma FP right now. That camera's dynamite. I don't know when that post is going up, but I'm, I'm a big fan. I have one gripe with Sigma, and I'm just going to keep saying it until they fix it, which is you should be able to record the director's viewfinder mode. But, you know, other than that, a camera's killer. I'm Michelle Delator. I am a No Film School contributor in the tech section. You can find me on Twitter at, at mdelator, M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. And I look forward to chatting with you soon. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. And I just want to mention you can always find us on Facebook, No Film School. You can go to nofilmschool.com. You can find us on Twitter, at No Film School. We have a bunch of cool stuff coming up on the site. Uh, Next week is holiday season in full swing, but there's a lot of big releases. So we have content on Uncut Gems, which is an amazing movie from the Safdie Brothers with Adam Sandler. It's in limited release now. It'll be a major release, and you will be able to see it and read all about it on No Film School. We have a bunch of great posts and interviews. We also have a lot of great 1917 content, which is coming out next week. Talking about Warners, that movie is a Warner, and Deacon's probably at its best. And we have a lot of cool Deacon's content that will be coming up live. Um, so check back to the site when you're trying to deal with uh, distracting yourself from being with your families and try to enjoy yourself the next couple of weeks. We'll have more interviews going up. And uh, thanks so much. 